G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 6 Preview Edition coming up to Anzac Day, of course. A big couple of games on the AFL calendar. And uh, probably just grateful right at the moment as we record this that we have an AFL um, because the uh, much-vaunted Europe Super League in the other code of football has fallen apart with amazing speed. In fact, I sent out a tweet this morning about uh, Manchester City and Chelsea pulling the pin. And by the time I sent that tweet, all half a dozen English clubs had pulled the pin. So uh, I think people power, uh, temporarily at least, appears to have won the day there. In fact, it's probably not people power at all. It's probably some legal ramification, which means that billionaires can't be multi-billionaires, at least for the time being. As I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Fine? Yeah, very good, Roko. How quickly did the big names fall over in that Super League brouhaha? Apparently, they've gone through all English teams, and there are six English teams that are going to be in the Super League. They're Port Vale, Rotherham, Swindon, Colchester, Rochdale, and Dagenham and Redbridge. Yeah, well, I think uh, my, my son, who's a mad Chelsea fan, he's been very um, perturbed by this, and he kept showing me all these, uh, I think some of the lesser English clubs were putting out stuff on TikTok. Basically, anyone who's ever beaten any of those big six clubs was putting out a memo with a reminder of the score and saying, well, where's our invite? Um <laughs> But it does make you, I mean, quite seriously, it does make you grateful for the model we have, which, of course, back in the mid-80s, late-80s, sort of flirted with the concept of private ownership. And we had Jeffrey Edelson in charge of the Swans and we had North Melbourne shareholder set up. But um, one of the tenets of AFL membership or licences has been uh, the clubs are basically uh, membership controlled and uh, we're pretty grateful for protection like that right at uh, this juncture or I'd suggest well wasn't there I remember in the early 70s and I thought it was Richmond inspired Graham Richmond inspired I remember distinctly remember an attempt for a breakaway but there were only four teams in the breakaway it was Collingwood Carlton Essendon and Richmond you would have got bored after about round 14 I reckon you would have been like that competition on is it King Island where there's yeah, that's right. three clubs that play each other every three weeks I think Broken Hills a bit like that as well it also would have been pretty ordinary for Essendon who are absolute crap in the early 70s but uh, there you go I'll tell you what isn't crap though Finey and I've got to say I uh, did happen to be venturing past the other day and I availed myself of one of these magnificent products and I was reminded, it had been a while, I was reminded just how incredible this is. What would I be talking about? 
Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, it almost demands one of those times when you're hungry, you know, a proper appetite. Because there's nothing better than when you're really hungry to eat something really good. Don't knock off your hunger with a pack of twisties. or I love twisties, don't get me wrong. But, you know, something from the local pe petrol station. Andrew's Hamburgers. It'll be every bite will be just magnificent, as I'm sure was your situation when you dropped by there recently. Because when, I know you've got a good appetite, you're good on the tooth. When you are hungry, that burger fits everything. It, it just meets all requirements. It was beautiful. I had a lot minus the egg. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it was a pretty quiet sort of Monday, but a few international visitors had dropped in. It was a, I actually heard an American accent saying how uh, he'd uh, been listening to his favourite podcast and ventured halfway around the world just so he could sample one of these burgers. And then I walked in to pick mine up because uh, one of the two Greeks had very kindly uh, stuck it on for me and he turned around and he said, hey, aren't you the guy from that footyology podcast? Say good to Fanny for me. Uh, no, I'm completely and utterly making that up. But it was a beautiful burger and I will be down there again very shortly. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And whilst I'm down there, I'm going to be checking out some of the beautifully refurbished homes. And that uh, is courtesy of the great work of our good friend Nick Spartels finding. What am I banging on about there? West Point Properties. May it be a complete sort of, a, not just a refurbish, a gutting of a, a traditional terrace house with the still beautiful exterior of a terrace house. But once you step through the front door, you are walking into modern design, award-winning eye for detail and maximising of space. It really is like opening the door into a Willy Wonka adventure because you don't expect what you're about to see. And what you get are beautifully appointed kitchens, laundries, all fittings, everything about the place is magnificent. It's a West Point property build I'm talking about. Nick Spartels, I'll tell you what, he keeps a smile on his dial even when the blues are struggling. And uh, speaking about great partners of the show, I have to, of course, mention Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis to more than 15 sports across the world. They simulate an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. Along with their famed pre-game and in-play projections, Stats Insider is also known for its full-season forecasting, the likes of which still has the Western Bulldogs as premiership favourites with a 20.6% flag probability. Stats Insider is also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis, and uh, they've got a great piece at the moment from James Rosewarn about how people still can't wrap their head around the artist of the AFL, that is the Richmond Football Club. Everything on the site is free to use, so check them out at statsinsider.com.au. Okay, that is enough of the plugs. We've got a heap of news, we've got a heap of previews, and we have some terrific footy flashbacks to throw at you. So let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed.
All right, plenty of news around over the last few days and a pretty important story, finally, about uh, grounds. And, you know, these stories can be pretty dry, but a redevelopment mooted for the Gabba, which, of course, last year played host to its first grand final. It's a pretty important venue and uh, they're about to dress it up. What do you know about that story? Well, the Brisbane 2032 bid for the Olympic Games is serious. And uh, interestingly enough, not that many cities want to host the game. So part of their central to their pitch is that the Gabba will be the main stadium for the Olympic Games. And their commitment to put $1 billion into the Gabba, increase the capacity to 50,000, make a walkway from the Gabba to a, a um, central commerce sort of district where people can enjoy nightlife and entertainment, food, restaurants, cafes, bars, etc. But it's a $1 billion commitment. I don't know how long it takes the Gabba out of action for an AFL team, but it certainly does spruce it up for the future. Isn't it amazing when you just said that there's not that many cities interested? I mean, you know, 20 years ago, it was a, a stampede, wasn't it? And the lengths... Um, people would go to to have their bids recognised. And, of course, we got caught up in that. And I remember a great documentary, I think the Four Corners people put together on all that. And we did it with the World Cup soccer bid too, of course. But, um, yeah, the Olympics, they're a bit on the nose, aren't they? Just as well, there's a football component. Well, they're they're very hard to turn a profit on. And, of course, Tokyo are going to have a horrendous situation with no people attending and most of the... Tokyo citizens not even wanting to hold the games, but of course these are extraordinary times. But even without COVID, they are a, and have been in recent years, certainly for Rio, uh, a disaster financially. So not many cities are after them. Brisbane is, and 2032 might be a reality, the third Australian city to hold an Olympic Games. And if so, it'll be all centred mainly at the Gabba with, of course, the athletics taking place right there. Well, they'll have their work cut out for them following up on the incredible Commonwealth Games that Brisbane turned on in 1982. Who could forget the giant inflatable kangaroo that was the centrepiece of the um, opening ceremony? (laughs) (laughs) We don't don't expect to, well, we didn't expect to, that's rare opening ceremonies back in those days. I remember people were absolutely gobsmacked by a giant inflatable kangaroo. But uh, good for football. And uh, they're talking about the capacity only being 50,000, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Maximum 50,000. Increased to 50,000, which is a bit surprising. Seems conservative. Of course, they could make it more because they use the coloured seats there to pretend there are people. Ah, yes, that's a, that is a smart tactic. All right, enough on that one. Uh, whilst we're talking, I guess, political, uh, yeah, sports politics, uh, interesting story bobbed up in the Herald Sun yesterday from Mick Warner, and that was about um, a powerful football figure, i.e. Craig Kelly, player-manager, former Magpie and uh, power broker behind the scenes, um, very firmly uh, getting behind a push for former AFL legal man and former Channel 9, uh, what was he, director or something, Jeff Brown, to take over as Collingwood president. 
Jeff Brown, of course, also the father of uh, Channel 7 newsman Tom Brown, uh, which could play out in interesting fashion if that happens. But uh, no doubt a bit of a concerted PR push getting behind Jeff Brown to succeed Eddie Maguire in that position. Of course, Jeff Brown, also one of Eddie Maguire's great consorts. The club is officially committed to going with either of the current interim presidents, uh, Peter Murphy and Mark Corder. Um, but I did write something yesterday, which you'll be able to read today, about um, the off-field stuff going on at Collingwood and the politics. And it seems like we're sort of getting back to those days of the mid-70s. Remember the power struggle between then-president Ernie Clark and who else was there? The Sharon family got involved and... Um, Jeff Brown would be, he's certainly not short of connections, um, obviously big on the broadcasting front. So he'd be very clued into the modern broadcasting game. That's where most of the revenue comes from. Um, but interesting, Craig Kelly doesn't often sort of willingly involve in his name publicly in these sort of things, but clearly a very concerted effort getting behind Jeff Brown to succeed Eddie. What do you make of that? What do I make of it? Look, I don't know the situation intimately, but to me, there's words running around my head like fingers, pies, too many fingers in pies, vested interest. Well, then the magpies, what do you expect? Yeah, well, maybe get maybe there's a process that has begun with Murphy and is it quarter? Yeah. That should run in its natural course. And I don't know, again, it's sort of, Big players, and Jeff Brown is a big player, always has been, whether of media or through the AFL's legal department. Maybe it's time for Collingwood to take a take take the road less travelled and not have such a high profile president. But best person for the job, man or woman. Uh, not the only story of import concerning the Pies this week because uh, they got smacked with a $20,000 fine from the AFL uh, about those pictures of injured pair Jordan DeGoey and Jeremy Howe grabbing their mobile phones in the rooms whilst the game was going on. And immediately those pictures came to light. There was always going to be repercussions there. Actually, the exponent, well, first Nathan Buckley went on AFL 360 and tried to sort of explain that it happened because uh, Jordan DeGoey had grabbed the phones from the box they were secured in, or supposed to be secured in, was concussed. I don't know about that one, Bucks. It sounded a little far-fetched, but um, the explanations have been interesting. So the players... Uh, hand over their phones. And if you're asking why this happens, well, it's all about betting, of course, and integrity. But they hand over their phones. Each club has, I think, 10 authorised device users who are able to use their phones and obvious reasons why you might need one. Um, and the man for Collingwood who's supposed to secure the box in which the phones are locked after they are taken possession of is Nick Maxwell. But Nick Maxwell didn't make the trip to Perth because he had been in Brisbane the previous weekend with the AFLW team and couldn't get into Perth um, because of lockdowns, quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the box was 
not apparently, it was unsecured. And Jordan Ngoi was able to stroll up and grab his phone and Jeremy Howe's phone, which made me think, Finally, after reading that, I thought, this is the one, the second occasion of the year when they absolutely could have used the two main Nicholas security guards who bring in the Brownlow medal votes every year. This could have given them some extra work. They could have taken the Collingwood box and made sure no one got into it and pinched the phones. But the funny thing about this is surely Jordan Dugowie knew this, and he, you don't sort of forget that even if you are concussed. Um, it just seems weird. Why, like, everyone knows that you're not supposed to do that. Why would you do it? I'm not suggesting anything, you know, uh, sort of, uh, what's the word, sinister was, on. Uh, you know, was, was about to happen, but it just seems a bizarre sort of brain fade to have. The whole thing's a bit strange for my... First, the first thing that came to mind for me is, in a box of twenty-two phones, how was Jordan Dugowie able to find Jeremy Howe's phone so quickly? I mean, you know, just sort of seemed to reach in there. Here's your phone. I don't know. No, no, that's easily explained because Jeremy Howe's phone was leaping over the top of the other yeah, mobile that's right. phones in the case. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense now, um, and. Didn't Nick Maxwell get in trouble early on in the gambling on football days for making a phone call? Uh, going back a fair way, yes, true, yes. He is, there, however, their operations manager. Oh, yeah, I just thought it was funny that he was in charge of the phones. It's a bit like the Harold Holt swimming pool. So, no, as you said, no one's suggesting anything untoward. But, of course, there is a process, there are rules, and 20000 is a fair fine. Is the club playing it or are the two boys paying it? No, no, the club pays that, and uh, I'm pretty sure it comes out of the uh, soft cap spending. So um, that, well, doesn't set back that much. I guess 20 votes isn't a huge... 20 votes. 20000 isn't huge in the scheme of a annual football department budget, but uh, not a great look. And last bit of news on the agenda uh, last night in Melbourne, the 2021 AFLW Best and Fairest held, uh, of course, a fantastic win to Brisbane in the grand final last Saturday over Adelaide at Adelaide Oval. Um, but the Best and Fairest, actually, just quickly, do you find it a bit strange that that hasn't been named yet? Surely it should carry someone's name, shouldn't it? No, I think it's actually good because we're only in the early years of the AFLW and to rush to give it a name really gives us a very narrow field. Let's wait a few years and in the end, the right name will appear and will be justified. But I know we've got the Brownlow medal and I know he was a very good administrator. And I know we're used to it, but he's certainly not the biggest name in football, was old Charles Brownlee. Yeah, no, fair point. And uh, he was a good administrator, was he? What do you think were the highlights of his administrative career for Geelong in the 1920s? You know what was little known is that he was actually a very good footballer in the VFA before Geelong joined the VFL in 1897. So he could play and he could administer. Now, back then, that meant having one of those, vi you know, those visors without without a cap? 
that the accountants used to have. Oh, yeah, and the little could, sunshade sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, he must have been very good at tapping away. Three shillings, two shillings, one shilling, two pence. Very yeah. good, very good. Well, I'll give you a due. You know more about Charles Brownlow than most people would. Anyway, we digress because the AFLW Best and Fairest was a tie. And we had joint winners, Brianna Davey from Collingwood, tying with Kiara Bowers from Fremantle on 15 votes. A thrilling count with Davey one vote ahead until the final game when Bowers polled a one vote for Fremantle in their last home and away game against North Melbourne, which was interesting in itself because she was originally suspended for that game. She got suspended after the round eight game they'd played against, I think it was Melbourne, and had the suspension overturned at the tribunal. And that's ended up uh, making her a best and fairest uh, competition, best and fairest winner. So ties, a tied result for the medal. Uh, coming in equal second were... Elise Parker from GWS and Ellie Blackburn from the Western Bulldogs. Melbourne's Karen Paxman, 13 votes tied for, uh, that would be fifth, with Anne Hatchard of Adelaide. Uh, Monique Conti and Britt Benici from Collingwood tying for, uh, that becomes equal seventh, doesn't it? I always get thrown by that stuff. Anyway, it was a pretty tight finish, but um, two great uh, and deserving winners. Bree Davey, I, look, I saw most of the games this AFLW season and she was superb. Collingwood had a terrific midfield, but no doubt she was the key driver of it. And she polled all her votes in a run of five consecutive games between rounds two and six. So just a superb run of form from her. And Bowers for the Dockers was terrific for them all season. So uh, you happy with those winners, Fanny? Yeah, look, I was really pleased. Obviously, Bree Davey was the favourite and rightfully so. But I'd seen Bowers play a few times. I was really taken by Fremantle early in the season. I know they dropped off. But boy, she's a good footballer, isn't she, Bowers? I mean, they both are. And there are other great footballers that got pretty close or got named in the All-Australian team. It was a big night. And uh, it, it got uh, pretty decent coverage in both major Melbourne newspapers. I did want to point out, though, um, the Herald Sun had a couple of stories, so not criticising them on that score, but one of them was a red carpet-type story and uh, lots of photos of the girls uh, rocking up for the count with their partners and what they were wearing. Uh, all very glamorous, but there were a lot of photos and um, you would have thought someone there would have done a little bit of homework before they put the captions on them because a couple which were seized upon, nonetheless by the players concerned, um, there was one pick of one of the winners, in fact, Brianna Davey, and the caption underneath that photo said, with her guest, which is a bit rude anyway because it uh, didn't bother sort of trying to attach a name to that guest, but a bit silly also when you realise, just by looking at the picture, that her guest was in fact her long-term partner, Tilly Lucas-Rod, who used to play with Davey at Carlton, but has the last couple of seasons played at St Kilda. Nonetheless, Tilly Lucas-Rod has been part of that AFLW playing group for all five seasons. So um, surely someone could have asked a question. A uh, bit rude. 
And in fact, that wasn't the only one. There was another photo they ran of uh, former winner Maddie Prasparkas with her alleged guest, who in fact was Carlton's Grace Egan, um, who did, I think, happen to poll seven votes in the same count. So uh, the photographer wasn't paying too much attention, it seems, and whoever was putting that piece together certainly didn't bother asking a few questions about who these people the players were with were, uh, you wouldn't see that happening at a Brownlow medal, would you? The other thing with the coverage I was a little bit miffed about was that uh, the Herald Sun opened this story up for comments. Well, uh, I don't know why I do it to myself, but I do read comments on Herald Sun stories a bit just to sort of see. Uh, no, I won't say it, but um, you certainly get some interesting comments. But on a story like that, you're only, only, you're only ever going to get one sort of thing, and that is misogyny and homophobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sure enough, it was a catalogue of that. The Herald Sun knows that, so why open it up? Uh, you know, at some point, newspapers, okay, you know, you want to engage with your audience or whatever, but at some stage, you have to also show a bit of responsibility, recognise that some stories it's just not worth inviting comments on because you're just going to get out and out prejudice. Not the Herald, Herald Sun would ever display any of that, of course. Anyway, it was a glittering night for the AFLW. And uh, as we have kept saying, it's been a fantastic season. So capped off appropriately with a great night for the girls and great joint winners of the best and fairest, Brianna Davey and Kiara Bowers. That is our news wrapped up for this week. We have nine big previews to get through, so let's do that. On Footyology, previews with Punch. First game of round six, Friday evening, Thursday night. Footy done away with for the time being. Friday night in Canberra, 7.50pm Eastern Standard Time. And uh, a very appetising game given the... GWS Giants revival over the last fortnight. They take on the all-conquering so far Western Bulldogs at Marnica Oval. Well, Stats Insider tells the Bulldogs house the league's number one attack and defence at the moment. According to Stats Insider's player ratings, they have a league-high six players represented in the top 75. Tim English is the third youngest member of the top 50. Only Sam Walsh and Jacob Wietering of Carlton are younger. Um, this is a pretty mouth-watering clash, Finey. Yeah, it's, you know, GWS a couple of weeks ago, we were putting nails into their coffin, but they've certainly shown something in the last couple of weeks, haven't they? So in terms of possible changes for the Giants, Sam Reid, who came back in the team after suspension, has done a bit of a hammy. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's the only change. Harry Perryman is right to return, so he's a chance. And, and possibly also young Shipley could come into the team. As far as uh, the doggies are concerned, well, they welcome back Caleb Daniel and he comes straight back into the team. Bailey Williams has done a collarbone. He's going to be out for two to four weeks. He's a good player, Bailey Williams. So even though it's not like for like, I don't think they're going to make too many changes either. Young Sweet who was given his first game will probably be excused as Stefan Martin's week off has done the trick and not that there was anything wrong with him. So they're my couple of changes for the doggies. Look, GWS coming to this game as a live chance. I mean, Bulldogs 
form is irresistible, but they have sort of waltzed through their last couple of games, haven't they? Gold Coast and North Melbourne, two of their last three games, I think, have been pretty easy. And you've got to really ramp it up, certainly when you're out on a cold night in Canberra taking on GWS has seemed to have found their mojo again. That being said, if you can't match motors with the motor that the Bulldogs have got going in the midfield, I don't think you can win the game. And at the moment, that is purring along beautifully, isn't it? We don't need to go through the names. If if you don't know them, you don't follow football. Doggies for mine by 13. Yeah, look, it's a great rivalry, this one. There's an argument it's close to the best rivalry currently existing. I guess that and Geelong Hawthorne, some great finals clashes. And the Giants have held their own against the Bulldogs. They've won four of the last six meetings between the two clubs. I was just checking the Bulldogs' record in Canberra, and it's pretty good. They've won seven out of 11. Uh, Lost their last two, though, to the Giants, one by two points and one by 82 points. And the Giants, of course, belted them in that uh, elimination final in 2019. Look, I went for a bit of an upset last week with the Giants against Sydney and uh, got up, got the margin right too, just quietly. But uh, I'm not sufficiently enthused about them to tip against the Bulldogs because their form is just, uh, wow, it's ominous. Um, Particularly that first half against the Suns last week. It was just Harlem Globetrotters-like stuff with the footy, swapping it around with hands, great link-up, great running. That army of midfielders is too deep for just about anyone at the moment. Um, Look, I'm sure they'll have a plateauing at some stage, but I'm not sure it is going to be in this game. I think the Giants will certainly uh, make it tough for them, uh, but I can see the Bulldogs pulling away a bit the longer this game goes. So I'm going for the Bulldogs as well. Uh, I'll give them the chocolates by 20 points. So both going for the doggies there. That is Friday evening. Let's talk about Saturday. Oh, some great games on Saturday and the first of them, speaking about great rivalries, how good's this one been for close to 30 years? It is Geelong and West Coast. This game down at GMHBA Stadium, 1.45pm. The Cats would want to play a bit better than they did last Sunday afternoon down there in a pretty ho-hum sort of victory over North Melbourne. West Coast, of course, will provide far stiffer competition. The Eagles coming off a really good win at home last week against Collingwood. Stats Insider tell us that while the Eagles are 19-3 in Perth since the start of 2019, they're just 11-11 on the road. Geelong has beaten the Eagles in the last eight straight clashes in Victoria by an average margin of 53.6 points. And something else to keep an eye on with the Eagles, they're ranked third last for opponents inside 50 being turned into a scoring shot and dead last where tackles to opposition disposals are concerned. Uh, Any changes to be considered before we make the tips on this one, Fine? Well, there's certainly going to be some changes for Geelong because Chris Scott has publicly announced that this will be the game that Jeremy Cameron makes his debut in the hoops. And it'll be interesting to see how that forward line functions. It's going to be potentially one of the most attractive forward lines in the competition with Hawkins and Cameron, if they can get firing. We'll wait to see the chemistry there. 
the other player likely to come back is Mark O'Connor. He slots back into the back line and it could be for Atkins, but that would deprive them a bit of mobility in the back line. I'd be more prone to suggest that maybe Colin Jasney could be the player to miss out. Would that surprise you, Rowan, if Colin Jasney missed out? Uh, yeah, it would, because don't you need a fair bit of height in any defence taking on the Eagles, given the presence yeah. of Jack Darling, Josh Kennedy and Oscar Allen? Yeah, look, that's true as well. So maybe Atkins does miss out, but then they miss out on that run that he was put in the back line for. It'll be interesting to see which way they go. As for the West Coast Eagles, no pressing need to make any changes injury-wise. Do they continue with Vardy in the team? I don't know whether he added that much last week. They could go for a more mobile player. Jermaine Jones, the obvious uh, player there. He's sort of been sub and in and out of the team, but he must be pretty close and I reckon he gives them a bit more run. As far as the game is concerned, interesting, isn't it? We know that the West Coast were disappointing on their last trip to Melbourne against St Kilda. They held a good lead of 33 points and couldn't hold on to the game. Geelong were hardly impressive when they defeated North Melbourne last week at GMHBA. They got the job done, but you couldn't say that there wasn't a bit of rust, a bit of ring rust there. And they would need to be on better form taking on the West Coast Eagles. It just is a hard assignment and one that I don't feel that West Coast has done particularly well in. We'll wait for your call on that, Rowan, with stats inside as help. But I just don't feel the West Coast are happy travellers down to GMHBA. And for that reason, and also for the fact that, well, given that, Cameron is in the team, and I know that it is going to be early days for the partnership, but that is something that all defences are going to have to really guard against. West Coast still got a lot of players out. When you think of Shuey, when you think of Yo, when you think of Liam Ryan, Patrick Shelley's still a week away. They've got their problems, and that really means that Geelong, I think, can get away with it. I'm going to tip the cats in this, not with a great deal of confidence, by seven points. Uh, yeah, same. Look, I, I just I can never tip against Geelong at Geelong. I know they've dropped a couple uh, over the last couple of seasons, but and the Eagles more than most teams really do struggle down there. There's something about the plane trip across to Melbourne plus the bus ride down to Geelong, which really seems to deprive them of uh, a bit of zing. And uh, the record certainly backs that up. In fact, in their last twelve visits to Geelong, they have won once. And that was that famous game in 2006 when they had to come from 50-odd points down to do it. They've had a draw as well. But uh, other than that 2006 victory, their last win down there was back in 1999. So uh, it's not a record that inspires confidence to go for the upset there. Um, And I'm not. I think the Cats will put on a better show than they did against the Roos. I'm going for them by 16 points. At the same time, 1.45pm Saturday afternoon, we have at Metricon Stadium, Gold Coast taking on Sydney. Stats Insider tell us the Swans' first loss of the year last week, coupled with Lance Franklin's injury status, means their premiership chances have slumped to just 7.8%, according to the Futures model. They're now a 60.6% chance of not making the top four. 
And a stat on the Suns. They are ranked second in the league for tackle differential with their plus 8.2 number, easily representing the club's all-time high. Uh, things are starting to go a bit pear-shaped for the Suns, though, Finey. What can they do in selection terms to arrest that slide? Well, they can welcome back Charlie Ballard. He's uh, certainly a key part of their defence and turned his ankle, I think, the week before, but he should be right to go this week. So expect Ballard to be in and possibly Lemons. Who goes out for them? Well, uh, McPherson hasn't had a great deal of football in terms of possession winning. Uh, he might be in a bit of trouble Um yeah, I don't know which other way they go. Howbrow had one of his better games, but he's sort of a fringe player now as Jared Harbrow, so he might come under some sort of scrutiny as well. Their opponents, Sydney Swans, are now counting the cost of the loss against GWS in real terms. Right at the end of the game there, you might remember the clash between Buddy Franklin and Connor Iden. Well, that has cost Buddy big time. And he's going to be out for, they say, at least a month. Let, let me throw one to you quickly there. I mean, the obvious, uh, as big a blow as Buddy, almost in structural terms, is the loss of Tom Hickey in the ruck. We were speculating about what they might do there. Any uh, potential replacements on the horizon? Well, Hickey's out for the best part of two months. And look, they've got a guy that most people would have had as first ruckman this year, Callum Sinclair. He played in the new VFL setup uh, in a game last week and performed well. 34 hitouts, 17 possessions. He'll be in the team. Naismith can't be considered because of his knee. He's still on the outer. So I think Sinclair comes straight into the team. Uh, they could also, in terms of forward line structure, return, uh, have McLean come back into the side. I know that they've used him before. Structurally, look, Logan McDonald, who had a great start to the season, has only struggled in the last couple of weeks, Rowan. He's probably had four possessions in the last two weeks, five mm. possessions. So, a bit of a watch on him. And I wouldn't be surprised if your man, after a bit of an injury interrupted pre-season and start to the season, is finally right to go and put into the team. And I'm talking about Rowbottom. I think they need his verve around the packs. And who misses out? Well, that'll be up for debate. You know, it could be Wicks, could be McInerney. We'll see how that one plays out. Certainly expect Sinclair in for Hickey, though. That is a certainty. As far as the game is concerned, Sydney's lack of personnel would be a worry, except they're playing the Gold Coast who themselves are pretty thin without Raoul in the middle, without Wits rucking for them, and without a couple of other key players as well, not least of which Sam Day, which exposes Ben King. I'm disappointed in Rankin, and I don't think they've got the firepower to kick a winning score. So for mine, the Sydney Swans by 19 points. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tip the Swans by a bit more than that. I just think really disturbing signs for the Suns last week in that first half. I know they showed a bit in that third quarter and came out and kicked six goals. But uh, yeah, it was just sort of back to that almost uncompetitive Suns we've seen towards the back end of the last however many seasons. And 
Uh, look, this list has been exposed thanks to injuries. Uh, and I don't know, we seem to cut them slack, but have we done it for too long? Because um, they've had a while now to assemble this group of players under Stuart Dew, and you just simply have to have more depth than they've been able to show. There are guys in that lineup now who have plenty of footy under their belts who don't really jump up and take the roles of others when they're out injured. And uh, sure, Rowell and Wits are major, major injuries, but you, every club's got to be able to withstand a couple of injuries to key players. So I just hope the bottom isn't starting to fall out of the Suns because it's going to be another long, long losing and uh, pretty ugly season unless they can find something. Uh, you're right, the Swans are a bit vulnerable this week in selection terms, but I don't think they drop this one. I also think Metricon Stadium is the sort of venue that will probably suit their more free-flowing uh, running game uh, that they're pursuing in 2021. So I'm going for Sydney and by reasonably healthy 32 points. And Rowan, just one thing on Metricon and, of course, the Gabba, but remember that they hosted a lot of teams last year, so they don't quite hold, those grounds don't quite hold the fears that they have in previous years. A lot of teams are used to playing there. That's a very good point. Very good point indeed. All right, that is the two Saturday afternoon games. There is one Saturday twilight game. Interesting contest, this one. It is at Marvel Stadium in Melbourne, 4.35pm Saturday afternoon. And it sees Carlton taking on Brisbane. Uh, the Blues, pretty disappointing last week against Port Adelaide at the MCG. And Brisbane notching another win at home uh, in the pouring rain against Essendon. Obviously, that isn't going to be the case under the roof this week. Stats Insider tell us that, believe it or not, the Lions have morphed from the league's least accurate club to its most accurate. What about that? Within the space of a season, their incredible 67% set shot efficiency is up sharply from the 45% they posted last year, and only West Coast outperforms their overall 56% accuracy figure. So they've turned that around, and it was a pretty costly... Uh, little flaw in their makeup uh, a couple of years ago and to a lesser extent last year. So they've got that right. Their form hasn't been red hot, but uh, just detected the start of a major turnaround last week against the Bombers. Finey, uh, how are they going to consolidate that? Well, first of all, let's have a look at selection. Carlton, they need to make a statement, don't they? They had a couple of boys in the VFL Played pretty well. Liam Stocker got a lot of the ball. And uh, I think a guy who had one game last year, Matthew Owies. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Or Owies, O-W-I-E-S. Kicked four goals in the VFL. I'd be giving him a run. I was a bit scathing on a couple of Carlton players in the Sunday edition of this program. So Tom Williamson, for mine, gets the axe. And I know they won't be axing Mark Murphy, but I wouldn't be surprised if Eddie Betts is excused because he's not really adding much on the scoreboard. So maybe Owies takes his spot. David Cunningham, touch and go to be back from injury. As for the Brisbane Lions, I don't think they'll make any changes as long as McInerney and Jared Berry come up from injury checks. Just one on, uh, sorry, just one on selection for the Blues. Because a lot of talk about this guy, he was very highly rated when they drafted him. And we've 
really barely seen him, Liam Stocker, and he was apparently pretty good value in the VFL last week. Yeah, well, I, I said high possession winner, so he's a good chance to come in. Um, but I imagine he'll play. There should be a spot for a player who is performing well in the VFL, given how the AFL team's performing. You know what? I would have thought Carlton will come out absolutely, you know, all guns blazing against Brisbane under the roof at Marvel Stadium because they have come under the spotlight this week and it seems like Groundhog Day for their supporters, promise pre-season, show a bit against Richmond in round one and by round six, you can think about next year already. It's really disappointing. Uh, The other watch is on... Sad because he has clearly been hampered in the last couple of weeks, and whether or not they keep going to the well and playing a partly fit Sad remains to be seen. I think that they probably should bite the bullet and give him a bit of a break, but we'll see what how that plays out. Brisbane seemed to get their mojo back in the wet against the Bombers. Uh, certainly, Lockie Neal did, and that seems to be where a lot of their good football starts. So. Given Lockie Neal's return to form, given the opponents are way down on confidence and ability and and scoring ability themselves, Carlton, I can't see Brisbane coughing this one up. Brisbane by 33. Well, that's confident. I'm I'm not that confident about this one because, as you say, the Blues can pull one out occasionally and uh, they've done it against this side too. I, I don't know why I've been thinking about this so much, but David Teague's first game in charge after Brendan Bolton got the flick a couple of years back. They beat Brisbane at this venue and played some fantastic footy. I don't know if they can channel any memories of that. Uh, Brisbane's record against Carlton, in contrast to that, is pretty solid. So uh, it doesn't inspire a lot of hope that the Blues might uh, affect a bit of an upset here. And Brisbane's recent record at Marvel is handy too. In fact, they've won three of the last four. They've played there already this season, of course, that amazing win after the siren against Collingwood, courtesy of Zach Bailey's after the siren goal. But yeah, look, there were some really good signs for them last week. Number loose, Lockie Neal, 38 touches. He picked up Daniel Rich at his damaging best off halfback. And both those guys can be really lethal weapons on that relatively small Docklands playing arena. So, yeah, look, the Blues have to show something. Geez, the uh, jungle drums will start beating furiously if they play as uh, lethargically as they did against Port Adelaide. So I think they might show a bit more, but I reckon Brisbane definitely has the uh, armoury to be able to withstand any challenge there. I'm going for Brisbane by 24 points. Well, absolutely no doubt what the match of the round is this weekend. It is what has become a traditional Anzac Day Eve clash between MCG co-tenants Melbourne and Richmond. This one is at 7.25 and it's going to be a corker. Of course, the Demons going great guns, undefeated and second on the ladder, the Tigers uh, getting a bit of their mojo back against St Kilda last week. They're in fifth spot, but of course, winners of three of the past four premierships, their credentials need no restating at this point. Uh, intriguing contest. What do Stats Insider say about it? Well, the Demons are conceding the league's second fewest points this season. 
Perhaps more impressive, though, is the fact that only 31% of their opponents' inside 50 entries are resulting in a scoring shot. That is e easily the AFL's best figure. There's also a fair bit of room for improvement for the Demons. According to Stats Insider's shot charting, they have hit just 38% of their set shots this season, which ranks last in the competition, as does their overall 43% figure. Uh, so, but for a bit of wonky conversion, they might have performed even better than they have so far. This is a terrific test for the Demons flag credentials, finally, because certainly got the feeling last week the Tigers were back in town. Do you see either of these sides doing much at the selection table? One yes, one no. So, Richmond, I don't think they're going to make any changes. They were sublime against St Kilda last Thursday and no reason to axe anybody from that team. Different story at Melbourne. They've got, I guess, the position that you want to be in, a number of star players potentially ready to return. First of all, two injured players, one well ahead of schedule, Stephen May, is a chance to play against the Tigers. We thought he'd be out for a month after that errant elbow by Hawkins, but apparently he's made a startling recovery Bailey Fritch missed last week with a hand injury and some quick repair work, and he's ready to go potentially as well. Both have to clear training tonight. The other two that are ready and rip-ready rip to go after VFL performances say that they're both in form are the two forwards, Sam Wiedemann and Ben Brown. So what to do? Certainly Mitch Brown is going to miss out. Unlucky, he kicked two important goals in the last quarter. He misses. Tom McDonald could go back if May is not ready, could go back into the back line for Harrison Petty. Look, I'll let it play out at selection. I'm not sure which way they'll go. I don't need to predict it. Suffice to say, Melbourne have got a few options and they need them because they're playing against the best team in the competition. We both tipped them to win the flag. We both saw why on Thursday night. They were fantastic. After two losses, they certainly made a statement. They were clinical. Their position, as you always describe, Rowan, they know where to go. Their ball handling and ball usage was superb. And they have a very dangerous forward line, underrated really. The firepower that they've got when Dustin Martin moves forward with Rewalt and Lynch is frightening. Melbourne are. Uh, impressing but they haven't had a test like this one and until they pass it I'm not saying that they can in other words I need to see them beat Richmond before I tip them against Richmond I know that's crazy but I'm not tipping them to beat the Tigers Richmond by 21 points uh look just so intriguing at selection particularly for the demons they've got some big decisions to make haven't they May May's inclusion is an absolute must I think if he's not there, I just can't see how they hold both Lynch and Rewalt. And at the other end, too, because, you know, as much as you want to see names like Wiedemann and Ben Brown as part of that forward structure, I think you bring them both in at once. Does that risk unsettling it a, a bit? You know, does a, a guy like Melksham make way? I thought he was really good for him last week, and he always adds something, gives them a bit more, um, I guess, variety in that forward setup. So, really, I can see Melbourne's selection meeting this week being long indeed. I can't go past the Tigers, though. That that was a real statement, I reckon, that win over St Kilda last week. And, gee, they've got some 
not just the stars, they have some players in serious form. Jack Graham, he's having an outstanding season. Three goals last week, and he's been great value up forward. Uh, geez, an impressive player. And Shy Bolton, I mean, he is a he's on his way to becoming a genuine star of the competition, I reckon. He has some serious skill, and he's pretty consistent these days too. And I think, remarkable as it is, we still tend to overlook the quality of some of the plays in that Richmond side. Maybe once this year is over, people will finally start to get their heads around what makes the Tigers tick. I think it's too potent a blend for Melbourne this time. That's no disrespect to the Demons because they are on the up. But uh, I just think Richmond are a cut above them still at this stage. Uh, I think Melbourne can keep them honest, but I'm going for the Tigers in this one by 28 points. The other Saturday night game is in Perth, a little bit later uh, Eastern Standard Time, post 8pm, in fact. It is Fremantle taking on North Melbourne. Um, Stats Insider reminders that while the Dockers haven't played finals since 2015, according to their futures model, they are currently a 42.9% chance of re-entering the finals fray in 2021 a probability at the moment bettered by only eight other teams. Hopefully they're the top eight. Uh, North have lost 12 of their last 13 interstate matches. And while they've lost their last couple at Perth Stadium, they've lost them badly, an average of 65.5 points. I don't think the Roos have been too bad the last two weeks. They're very competitive for three quarters against Adelaide before caving in in the last and very, very competitive for the entire game against the Cats at the always difficult to win GMHBA Stadium. That said, uh, gee, that stat on their road trip record and in Perth, it's not encouraging at all with the sort of young developing side they've got. And Fremantle, terrific win on the road against Adelaide last week. Couldn't see them wanting to make too many changes this week, finally, but maybe not the Roos either. No, for the Dockers, Adam Sherrod, the in-demand midfielder, has uh, suffered an injury, of course. He got injured last week, and unfortunately, that means he's going to be on the sidelines for a period. Mitch Crowden came on a sub and played pretty well, little Mitch, and he might be promoted to the starting 22. That seems to be a common-sense move, and it was a good win by Frio. They wouldn't be looking to make too many other changes. North Melbourne welcomed back Cameron Zerha after... Protocol forced for uh, concussion, but they lose Aaron Hall for the same reason. Lazaro, the youngster, fell for his hamstring just near the end of the game, and there's been a watch on him all week. So I expect him to be replaced by Davis Uniaki, and he should be right to come back into the side. Got a knock and only should have, they say, missed a week. So he should be back, LDU. They'll need him. We know that Fremantle have always been a better team back at home, but they were pretty good last week against the Adelaide Crows. They were the deserved winners and came sort of barnstorming home and certainly look a lot better with Rory Lobb in the team, don't they? Whether he's up forward or helping out in the ruck, he does give them that extra dimension and helps Tabiner out, who had his best game of the season in terms of goal return with four. Another game under Michael Walters' belt. We haven't seen him explode yet, but more game time, the better for him. Fife is going well, not as well as Mundy, who's starring. How's he going for a mid-30-year-old? 
And their back line, even though missing a couple of players, was vastly improved with Griffin Logan, the team. So slowly but surely, they're putting together a better side. They had a lot of injuries early on in the year. North Melbourne, braver the last two weeks. You're quite correct, but not brave enough for me to tip them. Fremantle by 41. Yeah, I think the Dockers get it done pretty comfortably. I really like what Lockie Schultz adds to that uh, side too. I won't do the joke about losing Hogan. Uh, but Schultz is uh, a, a real dynamo. I really, uh, to quote Luke Darcy, like the way he goes about it. And uh, they're a much better side for him being in it. And James Aish, I thought, was really good for him too. Sean Darcy continues to improve in the ruck. So, you know, some of these what we've seen, I guess, is more peripheral parts of the team. Um, they're blokes who are really starting to make a regular contribution and they really need that because there still is that dependence on the veteran trio, isn't there? Fife, Walters and Mundy. But uh, the more you can spread the load, the better your chances. I think this is, uh, well, we did talk about them being flat track bullies and we probably have to stop that after that good win on the road last week. But this really is a good chance to beat up on a, a not-so-seasoned opponent. And uh, I reckon they will do a little bit of beating up. I'm going for the Dockers by 48 points. Three games on the card on Sunday, and the first of them, pretty damn early, if I don't say so myself, 12.30 at Launceston. It is Hawthorne taking on Adelaide. That's as early a start as I remember since a game in Canberra in 1998 between North Melbourne and Port Adelaide, which I'm pretty sure started at 11.30 a.m. And that, that, was, was the day, that was the day Winston Abraham took mark of the year before midday. Correct. And uh, we've referred to that often. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why you remember that. But uh, anyway, uh, a pretty unusually early start time. Doesn't matter. Uh, so Stats Insider tell us that Hawthorne has spent 72 of the past 92 ladders outside of the eight. That would be as long a spell outside the upper echelon since they've had uh, since probably the late 1960s, I'd suggest. If a season stopped right now, this would be the Hawks' worst percentage since 2004 and second worst since 1967. And it remains one of the most curious statistical elements of 2021, but the Hawks are still a top five team when it comes to disposal differential. And yet they are dead last in the competition for total inside fifties. So what are they doing with that ball, Clarko? It sounds like they're mucking around with it a fair bit. Um, Adelaide, be disappointed with that loss at home to Frio last week, Finey and Hawthorne. They were pretty good for three quarters against the Ds, but uh, undid all that good work with a, a pretty poor last quarter in which they were absolutely steamrolled. How will they react to that, do you think? Well, they could make some changes. Some guys under the pump would be Connor Nash, Daniel Howell, didn't see much of the football, Jacob Kaczynski, unable to recapture his pre-season form where he kicked a bag of goals in one of our pre-season games, and he struggled for touches on the weekend. Mitchell Lewis comes back into the team, so that's a guarantee improvement up the forward line. The unused sub was James Cousins, and I think he's good enough to make the side as well. Tim O'Brien could force his way back into the team. And, you know, possibly there's... 
Tyler Brockman, who was uh, dropped, of course, last week. They say rested, I reckon dropped, must be in the frame as well. As for Adelaide, Shane McAdam only had a couple of t- four touches last week and he looked a bit proppy, as did Taylor Walker, I must say, but I think Walker plays. They reckon Walker sort of heard his, was it calf? after he took that fantastic mark early in the game, but he still was able to get around and make a contribution. So maybe McAdam out, but Elliot Himmelberg I'm tipping coming back into that side. So uh, welcome back Himmelberg. Hawthorne versus Adelaide. You can make a case against both of them, more than for both of them. You've read the stat for Hawthorne that they're not getting the ball into their forward 50. Is part of the problem that they're not being offered the sort of leads by the forward that are attracting kicks into the forward line? Is that the sort of the last eyes up by the midfield not seeing a lot coming at them? Because there's not a lot in that forward line at the moment. We're not getting a heap out of Bruce. We wait for the return of Gunston. And maybe Lewis could somewhat improve the situation back from suspension. The midfield gets the ball. Again, questions on their usage. I don't like getting stuck in the Mitchell, but I guess with that stat, you have to raise the question. CJ, our mate in the back line, is a bit of a bright spark. But beyond that, the back line labours as well. I'm going to tip Adelaide in probably an upset, given that it's a long way from home. But I'm just losing faith in Hawthorne's ability to win games. And one thing we've seen with Adelaide this year even though they did surrender a lead late in the third quarter, I think, even might have had a small lead in the last quarter to Fremantle, is that they've been able to win three games. So I'm going to defer to the team that knows how to win in 2021 and tip Adelaide by 11. This is a tough call for me, uh, but a couple of things decisive. One is that Hawthorne has a really, really good record against the Crows. Clarko knows... What makes Adelaide tick? Hawthorne have won 10 of the last 12 against Adelaide. And don't forget, for a lot of that time, Adelaide has probably been a better side than the Hawks. So that's significant. The other thing that's significant is the venue. Absolutely. In fact, last time Adelaide played at this venue was back in 2010. So no familiarity with the ground at all. They've lost four of the five games they've played there, but uh, it'll be the fact they haven't played there at all. And it's a peculiar venue. And the Hawks handle it, obviously, better than most. I think the three quarters we spoke about against Melbourne were, you know, but for that last quarter, uh, they've been competitive basically the whole season. So I don't think they're far off. And I think that will really sting Clark, the way they just turned up their toes in that last quarter, and they'll be looking to make amends. I see the Hawks, without having checked the odds, it's, it's got to be pretty close to betting, but I don't know if it's an upset or not, but I see Hawthorne winning this one. I think narrowly, but I'm going for the Hawks to win this by eight points. Well, it's always a big clash, but not as big this year. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Collingwood Essendon Anzac Day, I'm talking about. 3.20 p.m. at the MCG Sunday afternoon. This is a clash between 14th and 16th on the ladder. Both sides 1-4 and patently struggling. Uh, Bombers pretty disappointing in the wet last week against Brisbane. 
and Collingwood. Uh, not too bad over in Perth, but eventually losing pretty comfortably to the Eagles. Can I just say, Finey, before you take us through what either side might do at selection, we are headed here for one of the worst jumper clashes we've ever seen. Of course, both sides releasing special Anzac Day versions of their strip. Would have been a good thing if they'd talked to each other or someone at the AFL because both clubs have come out with a predominantly black number, which if it's wet particularly, this is going to be a shocker. And uh, people are already worrying about what this is going to mean. Um, have a look at it if you don't. Uh, if you think I'm overstating it, uh, it's the worst jumper clash I've ever seen. I don't know why the AFL can't get this right. In fact, Shane Hope has sounded off about this on Footyology today. If you want to check that article out at footyology.com.au, uh, what a stats insider say. Well, just one win each for these two. The Bombers have routinely this season sent out one of the league's youngest and least experienced sides. They do lead the AFL at the moment on tackle differential. In fact, their plus 15.8 tackle differential number, easily the largest of the AFL era, as too is their plus 7.6 gap to the next best team, which is Gold Coast. Will Snelling ranked top five for both tackles as well as tackles inside 50. Uh, either side, can they conjure something at selection to get themselves out of their uh, slumps, finding? Just on the jumper clash, I thought that the AFL, or at least the Giants, finally got it right last week because I always hated Sydney versus Giants games, but I love the fact that Giants had that new top, that really dark one. So let's see more of that. And what I mean by more of that is more consciousness about the jumper clash you've warned them let's hope it doesn't happen Colin would have to make some changes Roman because they've got four guys who can't play those four guys Jeremy Howe injured Jordan Goey injured Levi Greenwood injured Mark Kane or Keane suspended who comes in well maybe Braden Sear who was the sub uh, and in replace to go, he holds his spot. I don't think he did much. Hoskin Elliott could return to the team, and they've got options with Ollie Henry, Tyler Brown, Will Kelly, Will Kelly, I should say, Trey Rusco. It's uh, throw a dart at the board, I think. Uh, not quite sure which way they'll go, but they do lose some strong personnel. Essendon, likewise, loses not only their best defender, close to their best player, of course, Ridley. He's out with the concussion protocol. But Zerk Thatcher, who was dropped last week, had a good game in the VFL, likely replacement. Hard to pick a winner in this one for me, Rowan. I mean, the midfield battle is an interesting one because both midfields are down. Unfortunately for Collingwood, Taylor Adams' loss has not been replaced and they do look really thin in the midfield with, as we've noted, Sidebottom and Pendlebury not quite giving us the output of recent years and that's to be expected as they age. While for Essendon, their midfield has been led statistically in terms of possessions by McGrath. Parrish has been good now, I'd defer to your call on McGrath saying that he hasn't quite been as devastating as would have been hoped. Heppel off the halfback flank. Uh, well, he can't really be called in the midfield because he doesn't seem to be playing heavy contact football off the back flank. So 
who do they call on to bolster their midfield sometimes stringer i don't know i think that there's a real miss there for the bombers and that's why i'm tipping collingwood because in the end collingwood probably have more resources where the ball and where the match is going to be won for mine, and that is on ball. So I'm going to tip Collingwood, but without great confidence, by three points. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, I mean, look, Essendon's midfield is struggling, I think. Uh, they're racking up touches, well, certainly Merritt and McGrath, but do they do enough with them? I'd argue not. Um, bit sad watching Dyson Heppel at the moment. He is really struggling. They're still undermanned defensively, and I don't think they've got much up forward. Um, their record on Anzac Day is also pretty shoddy in the modern era. Uh, we didn't really have an Anzac Day last year. Well, we didn't have an Anzac Day clash last year, of course. The one time those sides met, Essendon pulled out probably its best performance of the season, so that'll give them some encouragement. But that was their first win of any description against the Pies since mid-2017. So I just think uh, both sides really stretch for personnel, but I think Collingwood might be able to conjure something out of their lesser members of the 22 than the Bombers will. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, struggle town for both these sides at the moment and, uh, yeah, perhaps over the longer term for both as well. Uh, pressure will mount. Not so much on the Bombers if they lose. I don't think we expect much of them. But, boy, if Collingwood lose this one, oh, boy, are you going to start reading some stories about change at the Pies on and off the field and in the coaches' box. Uh, probably more desperate for them to win this one, and I think they will. But similarly, narrowly to what you think. I'm going for the Pies by six points. <laughs> The final game of round six is over in Adelaide. It is at 6.40pm Eastern Standard Time. So that's a bit unusual. There'll be a half-hour gap, it appears, or more, between the end of the collingwood Essendon clash and the start of Port Adelaide St Kilda. Why? Well, we can only surmise because of Channel 7, 6 o'clock news. Isn't it great to see a whole AFL schedule thrown around the place so Channel 7 can get a few more viewers for the news. Port Adelaide taking on St Kilda. What does Stats Insider tell us on this one? Well, only North Melbourne has conceded less points than the Saints, who've seen their finals chances plunge to just 19%, according to the Futures model. They're conceding 483 metres gained per match to opponents. Only North Melbourne faring worse on that score while 49% of opponents inside 50s are resulting in a scoring shot, not a big rap on their defensive structure. Again, only North Melbourne are worse off than that number. And that equivalent figure last season was at 37%. So uh, they're letting the opponents conjure too many shots at goal, finally, but that's only one of myriad problems the Saints appear to have at the moment. What are they going to do to get out of the funk? Uh, first of all, hope as much as they can that Rowan Marshall gets up. The word is that he will be. The two late draws last week against Richmond should be in the side. That's Rowan Marshall and Zach Jones that come in for Paul Hunter, uh, the ruckman from Adelaide. And most likely, well, it could be Bytel, it could be Dunstan. I thought Dunstan was pretty ill-disciplined and he might be given the heave-ho. 
Bradley Hill for those who are looking for him to pay the price. He won't. Brett Ratton's already said he's definitely playing. Now, there's a couple of Port Adelaide players that got injured late in the game against Carlton. Not major injuries, but they've been watched on the track this week. And they are touch and go, and they are key players, Houston and Hartlett. And if they don't come up, then the sub that was used last week, Willem who, Rowan? Willem Drew. Will certainly get a start. He was pretty impressive when he came on, the big bustling redhead. And I thought... uh, He'd be good value if uh, one of those, particularly Dan Houston, was unavailable. And if Hartlett's not playing, even though it's not like for like, Tommy Rockliffe had 41 in the sandful. Big numbers aren't alien to him, but he could make his debut this season. I don't think he's played at all this year. If he has, it's only been the single game, but I reckon not at all. As for the game itself, look, do the math on this, people. Port Adelaide beat Richmond. And you saw what Richmond did to St Kilda. Now, that doesn't sometimes translate, but I'm happy to take a line through those two games and make it a very clear win for Port Adelaide. Yes, they've got some players out. They miss butters, certainly. And if they don't have Hartlett and Houston, they'll be missing those two boys as well. But the fact remains that on home turf, against St Kilda that are bleeding, as Rowan pointed out, inside 50s to the opposition, the likes of Dixon and plenty of others. Robbie Gray's in sterling form. He was great against Carlton. He looks back to his best. Are going to shred St Kilda. You can't give guys like that an opportunity. And there are others that are going to take advantage as well, not the least of which George Eide. So I think Port Adelaide comfortably by 37 points. Yeah, hard to argue a case for the Saints. They did have a great win over Port. Uh, in Adelaide last year, didn't they? 29 points. It was one of their best wins of the season. But that actually was their first win against Port since, believe it or not, 2011. The Power had won the previous eight meetings straight. Um, Port, to me, uh, pretty hard to top their performance last year. They're on top start to finish. But I think they are a better side again in 2021 for two reasons. I think there's more variety up forward. I think Georgiades is now absolutely best part uh, part of that best 22. And I really like the trio, which really is was only probably unveiled last week, of Dixon, Georgiades and Marshall. Uh, I think you've got mobility there and strength and marking power and goal-kicking potency. So that's better. And I think their defence is absolutely better for Aaliyah Aaliyah's inclusion. He's shaping up as the recruiter of the year, I reckon. Been outstanding for them and just shores up that back line a bit more against bigger, stronger opponents. So they are a better side. Uh, very efficient last week against Carlton. Now, never really got into their highest gear, but certainly got the job done. I think they'll get the job done again reasonably comfortably. Uh, I'm going for Port Adelaide by 20 points on that one. That is round six previewed, which leaves just one segment in this podcast, Finey. And we've been waiting a few days to unveil some great footy memories. Let's do it now. Fantastic footy flashbacks. Ah, love the theme music. Love this segment. Love the reaction we're getting for any people. Love their footy nostalgia. And uh, I'm going to let you go first this week. I know you're particularly 
excited about this bit of footage you have dug up on YouTube. Of course, not footage in this show. It's audio, but it is great audio. And uh, I'll let you set it up for our audience. Well, I think we're both a fan of that movie tone voice. So we get a bit of that, but we also get plenty of an absolute champion of the game. And what this is, is a wonderful colour reprisal of piece of the 1950 Grand Final, North Melbourne's first ever Grand Final, and it would be their only Grand Final until 1974. So this holds a special place in the hearts of North Melbourne fans, but they were not able to defeat the all-powerful Essendon that year. Of course, your Bombers had a wonderful team with Coleman up forward, Dick Reynolds, the superstar, the triple Brownlow medalist, and Bill Hutchison, another super footballer, many other great players. But it's not actually from the game that we take our audio because this particular piece has about a minute and a half to two minutes just before they go into 25 minutes of really good colour footage from that game. So I, I urge all of our listeners to hunt it down Simply go to Google, put in Essendon North Melbourne 1950 Grand Final videos, and it'll come straight up. But the audio that we're cherishing here today is that of the movie tone voice, and then Dick Reynolds himself talking about his love for football, and quite interestingly, how he's going to cherish this piece of footage because it's his last ever game. But Rowan, we know that that's not quite the case. Indeed. Uh, let's have a listen to it right now. No other sport has produced the enthusiasm and excitement of Australian rules football. Statistics prove that in proportion to population, the Australian game of football has more followers than any other sport in the world. Why is this so? Perhaps the captain and coach of the famous Essendon team in the Victorian Football League can tell us. Here is a player who has won three Brownlow medals, football's highest award, played 319 senior games, a record and coached his team, Essendon, to four premierships, played in and captained many interstate games. Let's hear from Dick Reynolds. Since I was a lad, football has always been in my blood. No other sport could give me the excitement, the thrills, and in spite of occasional worry, the real happiness that my football career has given me. And it's the same with every player of this great game, every supporter, the loyalty of, to the team, the combined efforts of the officials, players, and staff all centred on one thing, one thing only, the winning of a premiership flag. This film you're about to see captures, I think, the magnificence of our Australian game. There's no doubt about it. Looking back on my 18 years with the Dons, I can honestly say that this, my last year, saw behind me Essendon's greatest team for Essendon's greatest year. And it was a fine season for our grand final opponent, North Melbourne. 1950 was the first time in the history of their club North had played off for the title. I hope you enjoy this form of the 1950 Essendon North Melbourne Grand Final. Every time I see it, or remember, it was my last game. A flood of unforgettable memories will flash through my mind. Memories that could only come from being the proud captain and coach of Essendon. Well, isn't that a fantastic little audio package? I tell you, Fidey's quite right, though. It is a fantastic video package. The colour and the clarity of the vision is exquisite. Some fantastic shots of people 
walking down Wansdown Street to the ground and uh, getting off the trams in Wellington Parade uh, for lovers of football history. Uh, if you haven't seen that, absolutely check it out. Terrific stuff. And, of course, uh, as you alluded to, Finey, it wasn't uh, Dick Reynolds' final game because he famously came out of retirement to play in the 1951 grand final. Of course, that was the final series. Essendon was deprived of John Coleman, who'd been suspended for four games by the tribunal after the last home and away game for striking Carlton's Harry Casper. And Dick Reynolds thinking that uh, the Bombers could probably use his services on the field, uh, returned to the fray and, uh, from all accounts, acquitted himself pretty well. Wasn't good enough to get the Dons over the line. Geelong denying Essendon a hat-trick of premierships. But there you go, Finey. Uh, last two games to Dick Reynolds, two grand finals. I reckon not on his own either. David O'Halloran, I remember, we remember, came back from a knee injury to play one more game of football. And that means his last two games were grand finals. And, Correct. And I guess, debatable, but Robert Eddy of St Kilda... His last two games were the 2010 Grand Final, of course. Uh, pardon me, the two, uh, 2010 Grand Final, yes, against Collingwood, and then the, the replay the week after. So whether that's two Grand Finals or not, debatable, but they were his last two games. Uh, yes, good calls both. Uh, yeah, David O'Halloran was an interesting one because it uh, didn't look like being part of Hawthorne's 85 side, but uh, Alan Jean's very worried about Essendon's height and strength up forward. Bought O'Halloran back to play on the big fish, Paul Salmon, in the grand final. Didn't work out that well because Salmon finished the day with six goals, four. And Essendon, of course, ended up with a thumping 78-point win in that grand final. Uh, all right, my turn. And uh, I haven't um, gone to another competition this week and I certainly haven't gone obscure. This is a very well-remembered highlight, but uh, listening to the audio again last night, I was thinking how amazing the atmosphere was at the exciting conclusion of this game. As you will hear, I'm talking about the 2005 Second semi-final, of course, that name uh, pretty meaningless because it actually was an elimination final of sorts, but a famous game between Sydney and Geelong at the SCG, made famous by which man, Finey? Nick Davis. Nick Davis. I think a banner was subsequently made by uh, some Sydney supporters. Nick Davis has come to save us. Well, he certainly did this night. A really, really dour contest, this one. Uh, and Geelong appearing to have the game all but one. David Johnson uh, kicking the first goal of the last quarter for the Cats to give them a seemingly unsurpassable 23-point lead. The Swans to that stage having kicked only the three goals. Well, what happened? Let's have a listen. Change the team around it. Change the mix in the middle. You have to pick up four or five goals. The way they're playing, they're not going to do it this way. You've got to do Nick something Davis, radical. a chance from the pocket. Davis kicks up beauty. Here come the Swans. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> now they can go. They release O'Keefe and Williams. Look at them link up through the middle. The Swans are up in relay. Long from O'Keefe. Long and strong. Nick Davis is the home. 
It's an unbelievable passage of play. Have a look at the Geelong numbers back there. It was basically two Swans on the five Geelong players. Up forward then. He's kicked 19-8 from set shots this year. Chance for Canelli. Davis. Davis has kicked two. He snaps to a 40. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. He's kicked a goal. Unbelievable stuff from Nick Davis. Can you believe this? He's kicked three final quarter goals. And the Swans are within three points. This is the pure, raw emotion of sport. This is what we love so much. A contest with a big prize. A place in the preliminary final. Who wants it the most? Ablett keeps it in. The Cats want to take it over. They're not daring to go after the footy. The Swans are. O'Keefe. They need a hero. Crouch couldn't take it. Oh, how's that? Ablett. This is unbelievable stuff. Will someone stand up? O'Keefe stood. But just as soon as he stood, he was constrained, he was handcuffed, he was shoved to the ground. Oh, how good was that? Siren could go any second. Swans need a goal. Nick Davis! Nick Davis! unbelievable i mean you're still even listening to it you close your eyes you're back there you're watching it and you can't believe you're seeing it mm. it was as as anthony hudson says i see it but i don't believe it. look that will have to go down as the greatest single-handed victory in a game of football i've ever seen i don't know whether there are, I'm sure that there are others that compare, but given that that would parlay into a premiership, Rowan, I think that's the one. Yeah, you know what? Watching that again, and obviously I've seen it a lot over the years, but the thing that really people, I mentioned Anthony Hudson, people talk about how great that call was. I, I see it, I don't believe it. And Hutto, of course, being a Geelong supporter, able to put his obvious disappointment on hold and, and call a big moment. But 
The other thing about that call is the lead up to the goal. So, uh, and you know, if you're familiar with the vision, the ball is sort of paddling around the boundary line and two Geelong players, first Stevie Johnson and then secondly, Matthew Scarlett are both desperately willing the ball to go out of bounds. So Steve Johnson doesn't take possession and the ball is kept alive. And then it happens again with Matthew Scarlett and a, a toe poke from Barry Hall kicks the ball back in into the centre of the ground right in front of goal. And Hutto, as you hear, um, Hutto makes that observation. Geelong players don't want the ball. You know, Sydney do. And in the end, that won them a game. And I've often looked back on that sort of passage and said, well, you know, Johnson and Scarlett went on to become two of Geelong's best ever players. I wonder if those few moments were a huge motivator in that because the Geelong disappointment out of that game was powerful. Of course, they had a shocking year the next year. Um, and the resolve of that and what had happened up at the SCG that night fueled one of the great eras in footy, of course. So pretty significant occasion, but an amazing, amazing passage from Nick Davis. And uh, look, they went on and won the flag. You know, seconds from elimination, Nick Davis turns it on and uh, the Swans end up winning their first flag for 72 years. So incredible memory and uh, an incredible way to finish this podcast, Finey. Uh, before we go, though, please, a final shout-out to our wonderful sponsors. You can see it. You can believe it. And the best thing is if you go to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, you can wrap your hands around it and take a bite out of it and savour it. I'm talking about the best burger in Australia, Andrew's Hamburgers. And when we talk best, we talk about houses, we talk about West Point properties, Nick Spartel's eye for detail is supreme. West Point Properties, the best build in town. And the best stats in the business come from Stats Insider, sports and data-driven industry leader, providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. Proud partners of the Footyology podcast. Thanks to your company. Hope you enjoyed it. Good luck to your teams this weekend. Uh, make sure you tune in live on Twitter or Facebook to Footyology Final Siren following the big Friday night game between GWS and the Western Bulldogs. We will answer all your questions and comments. And in podcast terms, you will hear from us again, finally, on Sunday evening. And, of course, Sunday, it's a huge day, big day of football here in Melbourne with the traditional Anzac Day clash and two other games to boot. But let's never forget what the day is all about. And that is Anzac Day, a chance for us to sit and remember in gratitude the service given to this country by men and women in many theatres of war. And so many of them paid the ultimate price and made that ultimate sacrifice for the very freedoms we enjoy today. So it is, as the AFL point out in their ad this year for Anzac Day, it is a game. It's luckily a game that we can play and never forget what Anzac Day stands for. It's a very important day on our calendar here in Australia. Uh, well said, Finey, and uh, we'll see you later.